Welcome to Women Who Startup Radio. This is the official Women Who Startup podcast, recorded right here in Denver at the tech studio inside the Cable Center. Season three is all about fundraising, and I'm officially coining this season as Show Us the Money. I'm your host, Lazelle Van Buren, the founder and CEO of Women Who Startup and Effectively Labs. What's up, everybody? This is Lazelle, and welcome to another episode of Women Who Startup Radio. With us in this episode, we're talking with Catherine Finney. She's the managing director of Digital Undivided, another all-around badass, and I mean it, tech entrepreneur, TV correspondent, author, just extraordinary. We are also joined again in this episode with my co-host, Krista Morgan, the CEO and co-founder of P2B Investor. Let's get to it. Kristen Morgan is the co-founder and CEO of P2B Investor. Factoring is a financial practice of taking that invoice and selling it to someone in exchange for cash today. It's a super old school business, and we said we can make it better. X-Factor is so named because you are gonna break up with your factoring company when you discover X-Factor, this awesome line of credit that takes that same principle and just makes it a lot easier. We'd like to thank PDBI for being a Women Who Startup Radio sponsor. You can learn more about Krista's company at pdbi.com. It's our distinguished pleasure. Let's be honest. Uh, we were talking about this a few seconds ago. I am a fangirl, major, major groupie for our following guest. Uh, we have the absolute ple- pleasure and honor to have Catherine Finney on Women Who Startup Radio Season 3. We're going to talk Show Me the Money. Uh, Catherine Finney is the founder and managing partner of Digital Undivided. And let's just say hello to Catherine Finney. Hey, everyone. How are you guys? (laughs) Catherine, thank you for being on uh, Women Who Startup Radio. If you don't mind, just say hello to the listeners. Uh, Tell them a little bit about yourself. um, And hopefully I got your title correct. And uh, we're going to dive into who you are, what you're up to, what your mission is out there in the world, and why it is that I want to collaborate with you as soon as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my name is Catherine Finney. And... um, I'm the founder of Digital Undivided. We're a social enterprise that's based out of Atlanta and New York. And really our main focus and goal is helping black and Latina women own their work using innovation and technology as a tool. Um, And I always stress, if you notice uh, the term diversifying tech is not a part of that description. Um, We have a lot of friends who do that work. we we believe in not centering this on a space like mm. that. Um, we figure if tech wanted to be diversified, it's a trillion dollar space. They could handle that on their own. They have plenty of money. Um, our focus is on making sure that that the communities we serve can own their work. Um, and I think technology and innovation offers a way for us to do that. Um, really that's been difficult at any other point in history. Mm. Uh, The barriers to entry no longer exist at the level that they used to exist. It's interesting, I was talking to someone and they mentioned in a number of states, 
um, and this was in the mid nineties, women still could not get business loans mm. that they had to have a husband or a brother sign, co-sign the loans for them. This is in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of technology, and I'm sure Krista could could tell you a little bit about this, you don't necessarily have the same barriers, at least to get started, that you, you don't need, it's not like starting a brick and mortar store where you it's really capital intensive. You need a computer, you need the internet, it would be helpful if you had some coding background, but you don't even need that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the opportunities are really endless for women and women of color um, in particular, and that's what gets us excited um, and why I'm excited to talk to you today. Oh, thank you so much for that. What yeah. a wonderful introduction um, to an extraordinary woman, honest to God. I, I really, I, I love what, what you're doing out in the world. <laughs> I have so much respect for what you do because- Wait, with me, I'm gonna like- cut this like interview and like put it on my phone so every morning when I wake up I just like <laughs> that means a lot <laughs> that means a ton we were just talking about voice memos I'm sure Liz I'll send you a voice memo every morning yeah. just, about, just how much I love Catherine Finney yeah correct. done but, uh, to, your, to your point about financing you're right and actually there's all these stats about how women uh, women and minorities are underrepresented in traditional bank lending but actually the world of online lending I think it's 35% of the of the lending online is done to women and and uh, minorities so it is it it is actually making it easier because women are more and more intimidated to like just go into a basically you're going into a bank to be judged I mean it's terrible yeah. who, who would want to do that mm-hmm. so I uh, agree so today we're we're going to talk about this we're going to yeah. talk about women and money we're also going to talk about Catherine and her work and why she is you know climbing this proverbial mountain of investing in um, uh, in the entrepreneurs that you are, Catherine. So uh, let's do the quick rapid fire before we get this party I any love, this further. This is my new favorite part, This is the new, the fa- yeah, this is new for season three. So Catherine, if you would be, uh, we're going to rapid fire here. Ready? Okay. Let's do okay. this. Where were you born? Milwaukee, Wisconsin. As a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be an economist and I wanted to be a co-star on Bosom Buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, that's too good. What is the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? The first thing I usually do is go back to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Smart woman. Sleep is the best medicine. Best daily ritual that you live by? You know, hugging my son and playing that's amazing. What's your uh, what's the song that gets you pretty much through any bad day? You know, I have a number of songs in my head, but the song that we were singing today in the office was Allentown by Billy Joel. Nice. Nice. What's your favorite brand right now? Oh my god, that's like such a good question. Um Eileen Fisher. Oh, nice. Best book you've recently read or listened to? I don't get to read for fun, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but once a year, I read 100 Years of Solitude. That um, is fair. That yeah. is fair. I get I it. You're too busy. Yeah. Big time for that book. Last question. What is your life motto or mantra? <laughs> you know, <it's> so, <laughs> my father said this to me, and I live by this. He's like, you know, Catherine, you're, I was dressing down at the time. He's like, you're a big girl, so give them something to look at. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to look at you anyway, so give them something to look at. 
<laughs> you know what? Good advice. We'll just leave it at that. Really good advice. Okay, Catherine, thank you for the rapid fire. Let's dive into, because the intro already gave us a lot of awesome things that we could dive into. First of all, can you tell us a bit about Digital Undivided? And can we just real quickly talk about what an incredible scientist you are? Can you tell our listeners that <clears throat> you are an epidemiologist? Did I say that shit yeah. right? Epidemiologist, it's close enough. Oh, yeah. damn. I was it's okay. It's like close enough. Um, thank you for asking about that. People rarely ask me about my life as an epidemiologist. And um, yeah, and so it, and it actually is how I got even into what I do now. Um, I went to graduate school for epidemiology. I went to Yale and worked for a while um, with a particular focus on, on sort of social epidemiology and reproductive health. And epidemiology is really the impact, the study of the impact of diseases on population. So I was looking mm. at how diseases like HIV um, and, and other reproductive issues and sexually transmitted diseases how they impacted population with a particular focus on women. So I did a lot of work globally. And so funny, I was like pulling up some of my academic um, <laughs> research. I have a number of published articles and if anyone has way too much free time on their, on their hands, they can <laughs> Google some of like my very interesting um, epidemiological sort of uh, articles that I wrote. But nice. um, it was just a really interesting subject. It's something that I... Still, I'm involved in in many ways. Um, it was particularly looking at patterns and and looking at things at the population level, um, designing studies and research projects. All those things had a big impact on what I do. Um, and I got into tech deeply. Um, I mean, I'd like to say I started years earlier when my father um, became in tech, but. On the personal, I got into tech when I was an epidemiologist and I fell in love and I had a sick parent and I couldn't travel to the Sinai Peninsula and stay married. Mm. So um, I came back to the States and was running an organization for black women's health in Philadelphia and was like kind of bored. Um, mm -hmm. And so my husband was like, hey, why don't you start this blog? And I was <laughs> like, okay, what's a blog? This was 2003. Yeah. Um, and so I started my blog, The Budget Fashionista. It was so long ago that WordPress didn't exist. And we Whoa. used a platform called Gray Matter, where you had to hard code everything. And I'm going to totally date myself. <laughs> but I had to go to my husband's office to use his T1 line, because the line at the time <laughs> in our apartment was a dial-up that just was not going to do anything. And I had to scan all the images I wanted to show had to be scanned and then I had to manually via HTML and PHP put it into a SQL database. Wow. Now this is so antiquated now, right? Because mm. right now you take the picture, you send it to yourself via email and you upload it. Mm -hmm. But back then you had to do all that stuff manually. If you, It took me like hours to upload one picture. Wow. This is so ridiculous. <laughs> I, I remember um, when we got a T1 line at my college. Really? Like, Oh yeah, I remember we were in the radio station. They were like, "We're getting, we're getting T one," and that was like, that was yes. the best thing. It's the best it's thing the in the world." <laughs> Amazing. So you understand 
my pain. I do. And I that do. blog, Catherine, that led to something very exciting in the trajectory of your career. If you would share that, uh, that with us, please. Well, it's one of those things of, you know, when you're getting started, sometimes you don't know where things are going to lead. Mm. Um, and I started as a hobby because, again, I was newlywed. I was bored. And um, and I was frankly spending too much money. And so the idea was mm-hmm. if I write about it, I could, you know, spend time at Nordstrom's Rag doing <laughs> research. Um, I was really shopping, but I was doing research for my writing. <laughs> and um, within about four months, a, a reporter from the Associated Press was doing research for an article on people who traveled to go shopping in New York. And it was really two really interesting things happened um, as a result of that. One, she used a relatively new search engine called Google to find me. Um, <laughs> I happened to be married to um, someone who was in tech. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a lot of search engine optimization. And one of the pieces of advice I give to a lot of new entrepreneurs is, you know, marry or partner with someone who's useful. Yeah. Um, because, like, and useful doesn't mean necessarily they're in tech. It could be they're a plumber, they can fix stuff. They are really good at taking care of your children. Like whatever it is, let's make sure that they have some skill sets that are useful. So I married someone useful um, and that helped a lot. And then at that time, um, in the early, you know, 2000, 2003, 2004, most publications were not creating content specifically for the web. Mm. Web was like a secondary thought. Everything was still very print-based. As a result, many used content services like AP to actually populate their websites. Mm. So they had websites, but they didn't really care about them. As a result, when this Associated Press article came out, and you can still find it online, um, it went everywhere. It went to every website you can think of because at that time, the Associated Press was providing content for a lot of the websites online. Um, and as a result, our site crashed. Wow. Um, it got a ton of traffic. Wow. And that sort of led to everything else. But it's ironic, you know, it was this mi- meeting of Google, mm. the rise of Google, um, and helping people find relevant searches. And the, you know, sort of changing of the guard in terms of content online. And I just was able to, a little bit of luck, um, found myself right at that intersection. So is it true that uh, you um, sold that blog and that was kind of like a nice um, on-ramp in your kind of entrepreneurial career? Yeah, I mean, I've always been an entrepreneur. Like in fourth grade, I had a very successful friendship bracelet business. Nice. Um, (laughs) Such a hustler. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was. I mean, you can ask my older brother. I would give him, you know, loans, very low interest and fair rates, but still nonetheless. <laughs> um, and uh, so I've always been entrepreneurial, came from an entrepreneurial family. And at the time, blogs in 2003 weren't businesses. There was no way to make money. Google AdWords was relatively new. The ad tech was a very, very new sort of idea in 2000, 2003. So there wasn't really very many business models at that time to even think entrepreneurial with it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I really got my book deal that I started to see that. Um, and I did eventually sell my blog. Um, and I had many offers along the way. Um, and people often ask me like, you know, how did I sell it? And I said, you know, there's really four main reasons why people buy things. It's for traffic, 
talent, tech, or tech taxable income, mm. I revenue. Um, so at the time, you know, I had a lot of traffic um, because the blog had aged very well and was early. And remember, I was like one of the early people to do SEO. So Google had indexed me for a long time. And not only that, but because it was old, the domain had aged at a point. So it always will come up first for things. Right. Um, and then because of that, we also had a really strong revenue. So we had two reasons why people would want to buy us. Um, and so at first I resisted selling. Um, and then I realized I didn't want to want my mark on life to be the budget fashionista, <laughs> um, even though I'm still cheap. Um, like, <laughs> and, and so when the opportunity came along for me to sell it again, I jumped on it. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then went to for blog her, which is a massive organization that was then bought two years later. Um, so I worked for two companies that exit my exit, which was, you know, relatively small in comparison in the world of exits and blog her, which sold for, you know, much more than what I sold my company for. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a venture back one of the early, actually one of the early venture back women led companies. Right. Yeah. I, 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 was very familiar with blog her for ever yeah really really exciting so um tell me when when exactly digital undivided came into your peripheral like when was it an idea why was it an idea and then lead us into what is it that you're building there because then we definitely want to dive into all kinds of numbers uh for women and you know uh the investment community and um, and all that really good stuff. So it was while I was at Blogger actually, and Blogger um, held a number of events, and it was a Blogger business event that they held in Sunnyvale. Mm. And I went, and I was one of two black women there. It was a room of like two hundred women, and why that was significant was Blogger was an organization that really valued diversity. So I know that they were really looking for other people of color to be there. And I was working, you know, for them. So I knew that too. I was like looking for it. And, and we weren't being found. And it was some reason we weren't in that room. And that just really stuck with me. Like, why aren't we here? Right. I know we're entrepreneurial. I know we care about tech. And so that's really where Digital Divided came from. And it started off as in 2012 as an event, just a gathering. Um, went to some friends and was like, hey, this is what I want to do. Um, and got support from some very interesting locations. Um, and then we grew. And in 2014, we realized that the community building was important, but that wasn't where the long-term impact was being held. Yep. Um, and that that we were noticing we were having the same people come, but it wasn't like any new people coming. And so we went to, we wanted to expand this part that we had that was most successful, which was our focus fellow program, which started off as a day and a half um, mentorship and then became an incubator, virtual incubator program. And we realized we couldn't find any data. And this was at the end of 2014. And it wasn't even just data on black and Latino women. Like we could not find virtually any data on women startups. Right. Um, when we started, Crunchbase did not have any data mm-hmm. on women startups. Mm-hmm. And I like to think we're the reason why they went back and like tried to gather that data. 
great. Yeah, because that's new. So, I remember when they. Oh yeah. Yeah, they just right. put in as the founder, yeah. female or male or female. Wow. Yeah. So there was no way for us to quantify the problem. Right. So people were like, we would say, it's hard, hard out there for a sister. And they would say, okay, how hard? And we realized we could only give anecdotal because there was no data. Right. And I remember being really frustrated. And my husband said to me, again, marrying someone useful, <laughs> he said, you know, didn't you go to Yale? And like, don't you have some big degree in mm-hmm. honors? And so why aren't you being smart and using that? And I think oftentimes as women, we forget who we are, hmm. right? We, we forget the power that we have. We forget all the training, all our intellect, all our light within. Sometimes we have a tendency to forget it. And I had forgotten that. Um, and he reminded me of it. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, I do have this degree that we like paid off. And my God, that was painful. So let me get something out of it. Hmm. And we started Project I Am, which was and, and continues to be um, our data initiative that looks at black women, women of color and tech and entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really came from a need. We just couldn't find the data that we needed to do our programming. Um, and it turned into this big thing that's really changed. I like to think that we changed tech a lot with that, at least a discussion around um who can be an entrepreneur, who can run a startup, um, what is possible. And it's been amazing. And we've used that to as a framework for the work we currently do at our big innovation center and um, our big incubator. Hey, let's give a big thank you to the following sponsor. Maria Popo is the founder and CEO of MediaAmp at the Cable Center. Hi, I'm Maria Popo. I'm founder of MediaAmp at the Cable Center. So I started developing some courses, first of all, to give them an idea of step-by-step, how do you become an entrepreneur, and then how to incorporate some exciting and learning components. So design thinking was one aspect. How do you come up with the idea? So that was one of the original courses that I developed and I started teaching that course to startups and to corporate entrepreneurs that want to go down that route. You can learn more about MediaAmp at the Cable Center at MediaAmpTCC.com. Amazing. Amazing. So before we talk a little bit about, you know, how you invest in uh, your cohorts, because I mean, yeah. you, you truly are running a, you know, an incubator um, yeah. at yeah a Digital Undivided. Before we get yeah. to that, like, I would love to explore, you know, how you had to go about um, making sure there was money in the bank. Did you start out bootstrapping? Mm-hmm. Did you raise mm-hmm. some funds? Did you, you know, coin a seed round? Did you have VC yeah. backers? You know, was it difficult? Was it not difficult? Um, and then I would really like to cover some of the actual data that we know today on yep. not just women in general, and that's abysmal still, as as, as we can all agree, but women of color. I mean, and that the, it's even more abysmal. It's even more infuriating, and and making that visible, and making that accessible, and providing resources, and changing the 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 investment community profoundly, so that all women are being invested in. Um, so, so again, um, would you please kind of, um, kind of dish out a little bit about your own kind of uh, fundraising trajectory of Digital Undivided? Well, it's weird because I used my own money for Digital Undivided mm. um, because 
I have a tendency to start things before they become popular. So I started Digital Divided in 2003, which was about four years before the crash of 2007, 2008. Mm. Um, And so Digital Divided, when we started, people were interested, but they didn't really know why they should care about diversity. Um, They didn't understand the economic impact. Um, They didn't understand the market. So I had to actually use my own money because I was early. Yep. Um, and that's, that's the negative about being early, um, when you're starting anything is that sometimes people can't see the possibilities. That's the negative part of being a visionary. Um, but even though I used some of my own money, I was able to get a number of people, big name people of Andreessen Horowitz was one of our earliest supporters. Um, and so was Ogilvy and that was really important because they are visionary and they got it. And so oftentimes when you're doing something that's out of the box, the hardest part is getting other people to see the future. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause most people are looking at what's right in front of them. Yep. Um, they're not even looking at the past. Most of them are just looking right in front of them. Mm. And so getting them to see past that is probably the most hardest. What helped was that I did have this background, particularly from blogger. And so the first place I'd say to people, if when you're fundraising, start with who knows you and who's already invested in you. And Blogger knew me and already invested in me. So our initial capital, they gave us a small amount of money and was like, here, I think you should go start it and we want to support you. Wonderful. Um, so sorry, Kevin, yeah. let me just make sure I got the timeline right. Oh, so because yeah. did, did you say you started the uh, budget fashionista blog in 2003, but you also yeah. started Digital Undivided in 2003. You have like no. five, five companies at the no. same time. <laughs> no, no, I was actually, I had sold TBF. I had sold TBF, but I couldn't talk about it. Oh, gotcha. um, and anyone who's been through a sale kind of knows mm-hmm. when you, like you've sold something, but you can't say you sold it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had sold it and I was working for Blogger at that time when I had started Gotcha. Um, Undivided. Got it. Thank you. Awesome. So, uh, so, so having people believe in you when you're getting started in something that is a truly a very large vision, boy, am I, am I living that experience right now? You know, women who start up being four years old, being like a mission, you know, turning into social enterprise platform, Lord knows everyone looks, sees whites in front of them. They're very afraid of change and stuff like that. So I couldn't, um, I couldn't appreciate that absolute fact more. So, so having the right people in your corner is a big deal. Um, so when did you officially launch Digital Undivided and how are you like uh, tell us a little bit please about your your incubator who are you investing in how are you investing in them uh who should apply um how do you go about you know being a unique incubator tell us a little bit of the meat and potatoes of this incredible platform um so digital divided became a a true company in 2013 so we did our first event um it was a big forum in October 2012, like I said, I begged friends, Cory Booker, Senator Booker now, um, <laughs> was our keynote speaker. I begged him. He was amazing. Wow. Um, and, and we weren't a company because I didn't, again, no one was talking about this in 2012. So we didn't even know if it was something that people even cared about. Mm. Um, and so 
you know, we went to and we used Project Diane and data from that and really use it as a framework for our incubator program. Um, and there's really three things we came, we came away with from Project Diane, and that was there was a lack of trading, lack of network, and lack of capital. Yep. And those things are equally important for the reason why there weren't very many women of color, but specifically black and Latina women in tech. And so we built the incubator to address that head on. Mm. And so last year, it's so much, I mean, so many things we learned. Um, we, so in the beginning, we used a framework and we took best practices from a lot of different organizations that we admired. Mm-hmm. We took that Y Combinator, Techstars. We looked at Village Capital. We looked at Points of Light. We looked at all of these different sort of, we looked at um, Merge Lane. I mean, we looked at everyone to come up with um a, hip- a hypothesis to go back to my uh, science background of what we thought would work. Mm-hmm. We tested it, and what we found was some things worked in our pilot and some things didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that worked was definitely the networking, the community aspect, all of those things. What didn't work is that we realized that we need to start earlier. We realized that in our community, people really did not understand what it meant to be a startup. And of course, that made sense because Mm. there weren't very many of us in the startup space. So how would we know? Right. So things of like investor relations. How do you what is an investor wants from you? Like one of the things that was really challenging, I think, for the cohort was to realize that as soon as you take money from someone, they're your boss. Mm -hmm. It's not a grant. It's not a scholarship. They are your boss. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be on you and you're probably not going to like that relationship um, because they're going to want things from you. There's going to be things that they have to see, goals and metrics you have to meet. And I think for a lot of people, particularly who are new to entrepreneurship, but who are especially new to equity investment, that can be a real shock. Mm. Um, you don't when you take investment, you don't necessarily own 100% of your company. I'm sure Krista can tell you about that. Like, Yes, it's a sad, you know, sad Yeah, I mean, and yeah. I've been through God knows how many fundraising rounds now. I mean, it, it changes the element of, of you know, your focus and everything you do at, at every does. level. Mm-hmm. So when you say you felt you had to start earlier, are you yeah. saying... Like, so the, you're saying the program had to, yeah. like the curriculum was kind of too advanced. It already assumed a level of knowledge that you felt your entrepreneurs weren't even there yet. Is that what you're? It's not even just our entrepreneurs. We realized that pool was very small in mm-hmm. our communities for an accelerator program. Yeah. And so, you know, we did some data with Project Diane and looked at how many, um, particularly black women, were in, you know, tech starts, 500 combinators, and, or 500 startups. Yeah, this I really community. want you to go into. And what we found, and this was at the end of 2015, it's since changed, but it was something like we could only identify eight black women out of the 2,000 plus founders who have gone through those programs that went through those programs. Mm-hmm. And again, we start to ask why. And the assumption wasn't that, you know, all these guys are sexist and racist because we know that comes in and we know that's a part of it, but that's not the whole story. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we started asking ourselves why, like what was going on? And so what we realized was that there was no pipeline. Exactly. Into these things, um, that there was a cultural, a deep cultural difference. Um, and an example I give is, you know, when you are a talented, brilliant black woman, 
you don't ever put your worst foot forward. You never like this whole concept of, you know, putting it out, um, seeing how people react, if it fails, redoing it, putting it out. That's not that's difficult for us. And not because it, we don't want to do it. It's because failure is more costly for us. Right. Um, you know, if you went to college, um, many of us are only, you know, two at the max, three generations of college, right? Mm -hmm. Many of us are first generation college folks. So if you're going to college, people are putting a lot of their hopes and dreams on you. If you fail, it's not just your failure. You don't get to own your failure yourself. It's an entire community that you could be failing. And that's a huge amount of pressure. Um, And imagine saying to some, you know, 22 year old, um, young, brilliant black woman, hey, go out and fail a couple of times. I mean, that's just... (laughs) You know, it's the wrong language. It's the wrong message. Like, you know, we don't, that's easy for you to say because there's a social network. The system is designed for certain people to succeed. So you're telling me that I should fail when my failure is, you know, there are repercussions if I fail. It's not just me and I don't have a job anymore. I lose money. It could be, you know, family members lose money. An example I give is, you know, most, um, particularly in the African-American community, most of our wealth is in actually property in our homes. Mm. So where most people receive money when families do their investing in friends and family, it's usually from a home equity loan or we mortgage or something. So your family member is putting their own financial livelihood. Mm-hmm in jeopardy in order for you to do this. That's an enormous amount of pressure. That's not like an extra 50K they have in the bank. Um, and I said to people, you know, if I borrow money from my family, they're going to want it back. Like, they're not going to just be like, here's 50K, go have fun with it and go travel the world. It's going to be like, yes, I believe in you and I want you to have this, but I also need you to tell me when I'm going to get it back. You know? <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Fair I mean, enough. it's and, I, and most entrepreneurs. Yeah, I mean, it's different for everyone. It, it really is like not a lot of us, not all of us have, you know, wealthy families that just you yeah. know are throwing checks at us. And, and there's a lot of weight that comes with that, especially if we're uh, fundraising from friend, family and fools, if you will, uh, yeah. for a lack of better terms. Um, it, yeah, there's a there's an immense amount of weight. Um, it is interesting that y- you talk about um, uh, uh you know, um, women of color who are fundraising. It's interesting. I was on a panel a few weeks ago of um, only LGBTQ, um, you know, entrepreneurs and leaders. And literally like every one of us had like three or four degrees. And the, the moderator asked like, are you all overcompensating for something in your life? And of course, like a room of like 200 people laughed like nearly to tears because yeah, fuck. Yeah, we are. are, Right. (laughs) It's credentialing. You like, are trying to create value in the world because there is a very loud um, a collection of feedback that says you are not worthy. You're not worthy yeah. of success. You are not worthy of things. You are not wor- worthy of opportunity. And I'm not trying to correlate uh, you know, the LGBTQ community with being of color, but I would like to say that there is a lot in common with being marginalized and being boxed in and stuff like that. Now, collectively, I think we can bulldoze through a lot of that um, just very vintage um, frames of thought. And I think we are doing that, but I think it's really, it's really, really valuable uh, as you're pointing out for someone who has been marginalized. It's not just like fail fast, dude, or do that. You know, it's it's right. like, holy shit, my whole life 
feels like it's writing on the success and failure of this. Now, me, uh, in this role as founder of Women Who Start Up Now, I have to say, I have to say to everyone that you, you have to be risk adverse. You, you have to try and overcome that fear. You, you're going to have to try. Otherwise, you're going to be in stagnant mode and you're not yep. going to achieve anything there. Oh, yeah, because you try to make it perfect. It's so, and that's it's, so tough. Yeah. yeah. And so you have so to tough. encourage, you know, courage. You have to encourage courage. But if you feel supported with an ecosystem of fellow entrepreneurs that you know got your back, and aren't going to judge you for screwing up, for trying, yeah. that's a game changer. And I believe that's truly what, Catherine, what you're leading out there in the world as well. I mean, so, hugely. So, so is that, yeah. so if in the program, so when you think about like nurturing yeah. this next generation of, of female entrepreneurs of color, how... And like, all. Yeah, like, are, but you're not trying to, are you trying to say to them, it's okay to fail? Like, what are the messages that you're trying to yeah. get What is a better message? Yeah. Yeah. That's. Well, well, I think it's worth saying it's okay to be not perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Like, failure is not the end. Mm-hmm. And I think for our community to be able to say that, like, failure is not the end. You do not need to be perfect. You do not need to present a certain way. It's really a question about being vulnerable and how do you be vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's really what the, the, what's under this failure is this sense of vulnerability. Like if I don't present in the way that you want me to present or where society thinks I present, I'm going to be rejected. Mm-hmm. And, and we teach that, you know, one, you can't control that. Two, the failure is not the end. It is part of the process. It's part of a continuum. You're going to fail at some things in life. That's just, it's a life lesson, right? You are not going to be perfect at everything. That's right. And, and you're going to drive your shit self, you know, excuse my language, but that shit crazy if you mm-hmm. try to make sure everything is perfect. I mean, I think we all have met people who try to live a perfect life and they are just roiling inside. Um, yeah. And, and so getting people comfortable with that. And so, and here's how you deal with failure. Here's how you move on. I think that's the, we use a lot of the lean startup methodology. And I think that that's mm-hmm. one of the things you like about the lean startup methodology, because it's, you know, build, measure, learn, build, measure, mm-hmm. learn. Um, and it's a continuous cycle. It's not like build, measure, and that's it. Or like build, right. you know, learn, build, measure. <laughs> it's build, measure, learn, right? right? And you learn and then you build again and letting people know, so what comes after this? So this didn't work or you just did 50 customer interviews. We actually had someone from um, one of our founders from our last cohort who's now doing like fabulous. Um but she had this idea of what she was going to do. She just knew her idea was like it. And that's one of the things that we found, particularly in our communities, is people come in with these ideas um, because, you know, people watch Shark Tank and things like that. And mm. they think, kind of know. And she had this idea and it happened to be from the fashion sort of internet space, which is, you know, one of my specialties. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if that's going to work because, you know, Target and Nordstrom's, all tried to do that and it didn't work and they have infinite amount of money. So you might want to go do some more custom discovery and she gets shocked. And I mean, she was really shaken up by that because, you know, but she's a brilliant woman. She went into customer discovery and she found out 
that, yeah, these companies did do that and it didn't work. And she found out why it didn't work. And so, and she found out quickly and then she came back. She's like, oh my God, thank you so much. It saved me like so much time, so much money, so much effort. And I found now because of those interviews, I actually found something else, a pain point that I can sell for them. Mm-hmm. But Amazing. you know, yeah. helping people. And then it was like, okay, so what are you going to build? Right. So you built something, you went out and you got customer discovery feedback and they said, you know, excuse my language, but this shit is not going to work. Right. Um, and so you learned from them and they told you what would work or their pain point. Now, what are you going to build next? Right. 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 And I think that was, I think the lean startup methodology, I'm not trying to be completely standing for them, but I think it's important for communities from which failure is not a language we necessarily know or taught. Um, I think it provides a really important framework on what to do afterwards. And that's really what, what we do. It's about being vulnerable, being okay with it. And then what do you do? Right. Very cool. Very, very cool. Um, one interesting thing that I watched way too many of your um, YouTube videos uh, until oh. like 1 a.m. this morning. <laughs> oh my God, there's one for you have to find. This one is like, I look like a very unsuccessful drag queen. <laughs> like, before, I'm in Marshalls. I look crazy. I look so weird. And I'm, I'm going to find it. I'll, I'll find it. I'll watch it and I'll tweet you. <laughs> it's so. I look so crazy, but anyway. <laughs> but anyway, but one of the ones that clearly wasn't that one is you, and you mentioned it earlier in this episode. As a scientist, something that maybe you even forgot about is how brilliant, and I'm just going to say it, you are yeah. at pattern matching. Oh. And the one thing that you said in an interview that I was watching at like 1 a.m. this morning <laughs> was exactly that you started to pay attention to the patterns of the investment community and why it is that you suspect that they keep investing in dudes in hoodies, as yep. Krista always says and makes me laugh to this day still, yep. uh, white dudes in hoodies. And it, again, I'm not taking, none of us are taking anything away yep. from anyone that ever gets venture capital because it's hard no matter what. But you mentioned something so interesting. What is it that you started to identify in the pattern matching in your research that has literally gotten the investment community on this bloody loop. And there's a lot of the investment community that is changing and changing that tune. Um, but you know, there's a pattern there. I have to remember what I said, but I know some of the, some of the really interesting patterns. So one is we looked at the top schools that VCs tend to draw from and we compared it to the top schools from which um, black women, successful black women founders, people who have raised over 250000 in funding, which is a low bar, I know, in, in the scheme of tech. But, And what we found was those top three schools, out of the top three schools for white guy founders, only one was even in the top 10. Mm-hmm. And that we saw that Spelman, which is a historically black college, had the same number of black women founders who raised funding as Stanford. Hmm. Now that, I mean, to me, that was like a crate. So it was where they're, of course, if you are a VC and you're only looking at Stanford, Harvard, MIT, Carnegie Mellon, you are not going to find any black um, and very, very few Latina women to invest in. Mm-hmm. Because well, I, where you're looking at from a pattern, right? 
Um, we also found that on average, uh, black women raise 36,000 for their companies. Um, and most of it is actually through loans and things like that. And we found that the average, and this is from CB Insights, this particular stat, um, the average mostly white, mostly male founder of a failed startup raises 1.3 million. So wow. we were like even raising enough to fail. Probably we're, you know, we're not even giving that runway to fail. Um, and there was some other interesting things. Like we were looking at, you know, states, we were, you know, where are black women founders living? It's not Silicon Valley. Mm. Um, you know, it's states like Atlanta, New York, um, very heavily East Coast, which was very, very interesting. So again, if you are a funder, if you are a VC and you're only looking in these sort of networks you're doing, because this is the pattern that you have identified as being quote unquote successful, you aren't going to find diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. I think the irony of this, and this is something that I like to talk to diverse communities about is that most of the LPs and limited partners, the people who are the investors in the fund, I think a lot of people don't realize VCs don't, it's not all their money. Right. It's usually, they're out having investors. There's people they have to answer to. Right. And so most of the limited partners in their funds are the pension funds of big states like New York and California. Guess who the pensioners are for the most part of those pension funds? Black and Latino people. It's my grandparents. Wow. Um, so they're using funds of Mind our blown. parents yeah. to not invest in us. <laughs> That's wow. Can we just take a second on that? Like, oh my god. I had very never, powerful insight. I never thought about it, but I think your I think your point about the the network is absolutely right. And the point about you're not even raising enough money to fail. I was it's I was so I was talking about that the critical. other day. You know, like we had so much like we talk about how, you know, we've raised 10 million, but it's 10 million in angel money. Like I, we were not able yeah. to raise venture money, you know, for what I think are a lot of reasons, some yeah. of which are gender related. Um, but it's like, because no one ever handed me like $5 million at once and said, here, go and like, try to do marketing. Like here's real money to go and mm-hmm. succeed or fail with when you only have a little bit of money all the time. Like there's just in the end, you don't you can't do as many things. You can't take as many chances. You don't have you can't hire the top the top talent like I'd hire people be like, oh, Chrissy, you just need a better salesperson. I'm like, yeah, well, they cost 250 grand a year base. That's right. And I can't afford them. So I'm not going to get that guy. So I need to figure out who or that gal, you know, I need to get the tier like the next three levels down who am I kidding like (laughs) the best the best that you can yeah it's like there it's just like there's capital matters and then your and then your network matters and then you know are we getting introduced to the same people because we don't have that capital so you're you're right and that's um it's it's fascinating so so based on that pattern matching the, the the essence there to kind of squeeze out the real juice of that is um, something else interesting that you can elaborate on um, kind of before we start closing um, uh, or wrapping um, with just a couple more questions is based on this discovery of of your kind of your research and pattern matching, etc. I believe you even um, 
perhaps stated things like, I'm even looking at amazing accelerators like the big ones out there uh, all over the place. And they're stating that they're investing in women, but I'm, we're looking at their numbers. <clears throat> we're looking at their numbers and it's still abysmal. And, and, and like, for me, I have a problem with that because um, I, I see it as an opportunity. I see it as an opportunity yeah. for them to partner with pipelines just like ours so that we're accelerating diversity in um, the entrepreneurship world for great innovators that are, you know, investment worthy um, and accelerator worthy, for goodness sake. You know what I think the challenge is for them, if we're going to be, you know, keep it 100, is they don't see value in our pipelines. They don't see us as a valuable network. And I honestly don't think they actually really want to have us. Hmm. I was thinking, so I actually don't, and spending a lot of time in the valley and a lot of time with these guys, I think there are some who are really committed and deeply wanted, yeah. but I think most of them don't. And I think if you look at, I mean, there was a conversation that was just had between, you know, the guy, the Sam guy from Wine Combinator, the, the yeah. one dude from Palantir and some other guy with this right to center group <laughs> where they were basically talking about H1 visas and stuff like that and how they just really don't care about diversity they don't care they mm. say that and so you know and then and, and so then we wonder why there's not that much diversity in wine combinator we wonder why this is all sort of lip service is because these guys do, do not necessarily care about that i mean i think it's really important to have those sort of discussions um and then what is it that we are to do i mean one of the things that we've looked at um, with the Harriet Fund, which is our our impact fund where we invest in Black Latina women, is that you know I've been toying with this idea and I'm writing something on it about how I think the venture model is wrong for us mm. and for our community. It is pushing. I look at what happens with girl, you know, girl, not girl boss, but um, oh God, I can't believe I'm blanking on her name. You know, Sophia. Um, yes, Amorosa. Um, but just look at what happened, Nancy. which was doing fabulous before it took in BC investment. Right. Right. Um, And how it was pushed to this unrealistic growth metrics. It just could not sustain. That's right. It just couldn't do it. And so I'm wondering if that's even the right model for us. Like, is it, you know, how do we expect a black woman to grow a company to unicorn status when they can barely get $10 million in venture? Mm. Um, It's, it's, you know, there we have not identified a black woman who has raised more than eleven million dollars in venture hmm. at all. Wow. Period. Right. Of course, if anyone listening knows of someone who's raised more than that, please let us know. Exactly. Um, but like we have not yet identified. So how that hell are you supposed to grow a company to unicorn status if you cannot raise more than $11 million. Like that's just so bad, crazy. Like you can't do it, right? And so we thought, well, what what if instead of trying to push us to these status and try to get some people to give money and who to invest in things they fundamentally don't believe in, right? And if behind closed doors, they will tell you they fundamentally don't believe women can do it or people of color or whatever. They don't mm-hmm. believe we can do it. What if we change the idea and say, hey, you know, let's see how many companies we can get to 50 to 100 million. 
right? That right. is doable. There are patterns for that. Um, and you're telling me that if you sell your company for $100 million, you own 80% of it, that you're not going to take $80 million. That's not going to be a good exit, right? right? And I think we start thinking in that terms of like, how do we do that and then help those companies once they do sell to then do something else? And they can use their own money to fund. They don't need anyone else's. If you have $80 million, you can use $80 million to do something else. And you don't have to ask anyone's permission. That's right. But those are the things that we're really thinking about um, at Digital Divided is like, how do we rethink this? How do we decentralize and decenter these VC guys from what we do? Because if we were to center them and we continue to center them, we're not going to go anywhere. And we've been doing this for five years. We mm-hmm. have seen it has not gone anywhere. So let's do something different. Let's think differently. Let's pivot ourselves, right? And I'm thinking about the community as a whole. Let's let's have some discussions on alternative ways in which we could do capital or reframing it. And let's just like X them out completely, right? Right. I, I mean, I, mean, I think you're... I see that as someone who's an investor. Like, I think you're so... I think you're so right. And it's... Uh, Powerful. It's really powerful. We have because, to re. We have to re. Well, and I think in the end, the VC it. model does promote a somewhat unsustainable business model. I mean, let's face it, yeah. right? It's just I come up with this idea, and you've come up with an idea that requires x amount of capital, call it a hundred million dollars, just to like get it off like, the ground, get it up and running, and get enough customers to start to make it viable. Before then, you're like, oh yeah, now we might make money. We look at companies like Uber. Who have huge yeah. revenue and still huge losses, and and we and I think you're right. Do we have to ask ourselves: Is that even the right model? Is there a different way? And the, and the fact is, is the fact yes. is, those CEOs at exit are not walking away with eighty million. They're just not. They're, they're just not. Thing that people don't realize, right? Yeah. So if you retain ownership of your company and it sells for a hundred million, like if you reach a billion, you're probably not walking away with. 80 million, right? You're probably walking maybe if you're lucky 10 million or 20 million. But I think most people don't understand that, right? Mm. So they think, oh, you walk away a billion, you're a billionaire. Well, no, no. you know, likely no. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you're just, you just know you're set up to go and get your, you know, money for your next company. I mean, you're just on exactly. that, you're on that hamster wheel, aren't you? Um, so, so yeah. I- incredible stuff. I want to round out with, um, Two uh, closing uh, questions, Catherine, if you would. Um, one, uh, as someone listening to this episode that is kind of setting out to, you know, take on the the heavy waves of fundraising for the first time, especially and pertinently if they are potentially a woman of color, um, what is the top things that you want to encourage them to hear today? Well, I want them to know that and encouraging to hear is that, A, they have to build their network and build network in all sorts of different directions. Um, B, realize that you aren't going to raise the same amount of money as your white male counterparts. Realize that. Don't even have that be a goal of yours. Actually, I wouldn't even say raising money should be a goal. I think that should be the very last thing that you look forward to. And C, focus on growth. Like focus on creating a platform or if you're doing hardware or what have you, focus on getting customers, focus on getting people to use your product, to buy it, to engage, not on raising money. That should be 
is secondary. And the reason why they want to do that is when you have such high growth, when you have real customers, then when you go into these VCs, you can set your terms. When you have revenue, when you're building your company from revenue, then you come in from a position of power um, or more power. I don't want to say 100% power, but more power than if you're going to go into them blankly. It's very, very hard. Um, through Project Diane, we've only identified approximately 20 um, VCs who've actually ever invested in a black woman. So it's really, really hard. And you can think that you're going to be the first to sort of, you know, um, integrate the VC world. And if that's what you want to do, that's great, but it's going to be really, really hard. So focus on growth, focus on real customers, focus on creating a real business and, you know, not on raising money and investment. such good advice. I mean, as entrepreneurs, we need to be zoned in on building value in the world. That means equally making money. And that means that you understand and appreciate where fundraising components come into play, whether that's loan or grants or winning competitions or actually raising whether angel or venture capital yeah, money. Yeah, but let's recognize it's hard though. Like even just All listening to you say that, All Catherine, like this, you know, don't don't try to compare yourself to your male counterparts and don't try to raise yeah. that money. Like I can tell you that I constantly compare myself to that. And I constantly am like, just like, oh, I will do it. Like I will be the one that, you know, can go out and, and raise that money and, and, and you will and but well but the thing is why do i care i think that's the point i think that's what yeah like so um, well as entrepreneurs we 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 have distinguished types of egos and that fuels (laughs) we have a special kind of well yeah and 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 i in 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 a good way i think we have to fuel ourselves with enough self-belief that we continue to self-motivate otherwise we will never continue oh, on this climb i agree yeah. let's just but let I me just say i get so fair, I get though. the message it is a, yeah. it is hard and i think you're right we just it's gonna take it's gonna take time to change and like sort of to get women and really anyone you know any minority to feel that that's okay and that right we can't compare ourselves to like white guys, anyone white guys in, who live in silicon valley okay. It <laughs> came out of Stanford. There's okay? also practical. You as an entrepreneur, your goal is to build and grow your company. Yeah. Not to give, you know, gender studies or race relation courses to VC guys. Like that is not your job. <laughs> Amen. Like, you, you don't have time to to explain why black people go to college. I mean, you yeah. just don't have or why as women how you can do this and still have a family, right? You yeah. just don't have the time, because that's time that takes away from you building and growing mm. your company that's and your organization. So if you think of it in that way, Heck yeah. um, it it's, I think it helps put it in a context because um, you just don't have the time to do that. That's right. Catherine, why didn't I meet you five years ago? Yeah, what I, I know. <laughs> You've been sleeping at the I've, wheel. I know. <laughs> okay, I would really love to um, end on a very powerful note, not that this entire conversation hasn't been um, uh, very valuable. Uh, Catherine, um, at Women Who Start Up, my slogan and motto in life and, and a thing that I happen to say a lot is, is keep climbing. Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs... Um, one, have no idea how tough it is to start the climb of a big old hairy mountain and uh, any 
uh, startup venture is a big old hairy unknown mountain that you're climbing. And I think uh, a lot of people forget that uh, when you feel that moment, uh, which is a million different moments, that you just want to quit, you really should just rest and then you keep going and you keep working and you keep grinding and you keep hustling and you keep trying and you keep failing forward and all that stuff that we talked about today. But the question for you is, um, as our motto and slogan is keep climbing, what inspires you to keep climbing? You know, what really inspires me is um, my son. Like he, there's something about whether you're, you know, a kid person or not, but there's something about Mm. kids and he's one and a half. He's discovering the world. Mm. He does not understand the boundaries yet, right? Mm. He hasn't, the boundaries haven't been placed in him yet. So everything he meets, everything he interacts with is new and is great and is amazing, right? You know, dirt is amazing. He loves (laughs) lint. He's a fan (laughs) of lint. He just discovered lint. And so, you know, we look at lint and we're like, whatever. But for him, it's like the greatest thing because he's learning and seeing things new. And that really inspires me, um, especially when you've been around for a while, Mm. um, to not, you know, to see things new and see the world new and learn more. Um, and that really motivates me to keep going. Um, and it puts things in context for me. Um, and it helps me understand why we do what we do. Amazing. Can you please tell our listeners how they learn more about Digital Undivided and you? Sure. You can follow me on Twitter, Catherine Finney. Um, you can also, you know, look us up online at digitalundivided.com. And any last words to encourage anyone? Um, you, you said you're in Atlanta and New York City. Is that correct with your with your cohort um, uh, programs? Uh, who would you like to inspire to make sure that they check out your program and dive in? Well, we like to inspire everyone. So um, for our cohort and founders, you know, Black and Latina women, our application process ends April 30th for our second cohort based in Atlanta. And then for people who are not black or Latino women, but who are just really interested in what we're doing, um, we encourage people to email us. We're always looking for mentors. We're always looking for, you know, people to come in. Our space is inclusive for everyone. Um, And we invite everyone. We always have events and things that are fun and interesting and different. Um, and, and they are welcome to everyone, all ages, races, gender, sexual orientation. I mean, you, we're open to everyone. Um, and we encourage people to look us up and stop by. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, this, has been, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for keep inspiring the world to, uh, through entrepreneurship, I should say. Um, it, it, I think very few people in this world understand what it means to be uh, an impact entrepreneur to literally try and cultivate, um, you know, innovation and and bring the people with you up the mountain. And that's yeah. definitely what you're doing out there in the world. Much respect. And uh, I cannot wait to collaborate with you in some way, shape or form 2017 and on. Thank you. It's been an absolute, absolute honor. And now, you know, some some person is watching every YouTube video you've ever made. <laughs> God bless you. And of course, be with you on that one. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye, guys. Catherine, thank you very much. Yeah. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Women Who Startup Radio. To learn more about Women Who Startup, please visit womenwhostartup.com. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please feel inspired to share it everywhere and to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. Take care of yourselves, my friend. And as always, keep climbing.